The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the latest edition of the MindGuard Conversation podcast, a place to learn about breakthroughs in the science and practice of health, mind-body interactions, the microbiome, food, and the environment. Today, I have the great pleasure to talk to Dr. Sharon Horst Berquist, a Harvard-trained, nationally recognized lifestyle medicine pioneer. Dr. Berquist is a practicing internist with over two decades of patient-centered clinical experience and scientist on the front line of developing early predictors of disease and healthy aging. She is the Pam R. Rollins Professor of Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine and founder and director of Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness. She is an advocate for advancing healthcare by integrating lifestyle medicine, resiliency, and prevention-based science into clinical care. She has contributed to numerous health segments, is the host of the Whole Health Cure podcast, and author of the upcoming book, Plantology, a cookbook based on the science of plant-based eating. Welcome to the show, Sharon. I'm really curious to hear some of the some of your own stories that has led you on a on on a, on a path to holistic health and um, an area that I personally, as you know, I'm very fond of as well. And so it's always nice to talk to colleagues who uh, are operating on the same or a similar wavelength. So maybe if you can just say a few words of. Um, you had an illustrious medical career uh, and training. If you just, you know, start from the beginning and I'm particularly interested when, when did your mindset, I mean, did you always had the mindset uh, that this is where you wanted to end up in or did this evolve over time during your training? Yeah, Emron, first of all, thank you so much for having me as a guest. It's an absolute honor to be here and to talk about a topic that I'm incredibly passionate about, which is prevention through lifestyle. And to answer your question, you know, I think most of our paths into lifestyle medicine are partly personal and partly professional. You know, when I look back, putting together the pieces from my personal life, you know, I was raised in a family where my mom cooked traditional meals from scratch. You know, we always ate whole ingredients. And, you know, throughout my career, I think I took that with me. And as I got into the practice of internal medicine, which is what I've been practicing for over two decades now, over time, I started seeing that most of what we treat are common chronic diseases, diabetes, hypertension, dementia, hypertension, dyslipidemia. And the only solution or one of the only solutions I could offer my patients was either medications or very quick office advice saying things like, well, diet and exercise, which 
you know, leave a whole lot of room for extrapolation. And, and what I wasn't doing is telling patients what should be happening in between office visits. And, and really that's the key to being well. And so I really redirected um, a lot of my career, both from the research perspective, as well as where I put my efforts in the clinical space to create more evidence-based information around what that time frame in between office visits should look like and to be more prescriptive about what that diet, exercise, and other lifestyle habits should be so that my patients could actually get better. When when did this, so I mean, in a typical, I mean, I see it with our medical students, you know, they're very, um, so the pre-med students that come uh, into our lab, you know, and, and um, want to do some research, they're all very um, holistically oriented. And, and I have to say, it's it's primarily um, female students that we get now. It's almost ex exclusively. That's an interesting point as well. Um, and then they go through, you know, the intensive, I shouldn't say brainwashing, but, you know, really programming of, uh, you know, of, of medical school based on traditional um concepts in medicine and and education and when they come out you know i mean they're not the same most of them are not the same person anymore and um so when 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 you finished medical school did 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 you really have this idea that you were more interested in lifestyle medicine and prevention rather than you know prescribing pills or doing the um <clears throat> I mean, the other thing that that I've noticed, you know, we're doing a lot of these um, uh, assessment of risk factors, um, like like in my specialty, screening colonoscopy is, is a good example. But then the people that are screened, you know, there's no dietary recommendation, not 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 even assessment, you know. So, <clears throat> make a long story short, um, when when did this really? get into your awareness was this in medical school or after you were seeing patients in your clinic in your practice yeah Emran, as you point out medical training when i trained which was in the 1990s did not emphasize or really even dedicate any significant amount of time to nutrition or prevention and that's slowly changing i think um there's still a lot of room for improvement there so when I left medical school, what I really knew was that I loved internal medicine. Um, and what drew me to that was kind of seeing the forest through the trees. So in a lot of cases, when people finish their training, they end up in subspecialties. And, you know, part of that is because a lot of us train in tertiary care academic centers where we're exposed to high tech treatments. Um, as the predominant form of managing our patients. And part of that is financially driven. But I knew what I wanted to do was to see people as a whole person, to kind of see how the parts fit together to make a person whole and to establish relationships. Because at the end, when you fix a part of the body through a procedure, that's very different than healing. And I was drawn to the relationships that heal. So to me, that's the superpower of an internist. 
Yeah, and you've done obviously a phenomenal job. I mean, I I don't know too many people. I mean, there's there's colleagues of us, you know, who who chose functional medicine because I, I think for that reason, because they were more interested in these aspects outside of traditional medicine. I mean, functional medicine has its drawbacks. You know, it's not something I've always been very critical in terms of what they actually do, but the philosophy is 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 very similar to the way you think and the way the way I think. Yeah, you've been very successful in in establishing a a program uh, at at Emory with that has multi that does this on multiple dimensions. And I I was kind of curious if if you could briefly get get into this. So, um, I mean, your goals, you know, as as everybody can see on your on your website, um, prevent, treat, and reverse disease. An important one, reduce reliance on medications, get to the root cause of, of um, issues of symptoms, function and perform at your best. So general, you know, uh, not not just specific symptoms, but overall well-being uh, and live a healthier, happier, and, and longer life. Um, so I mean, most of these things are not, you know, part of when it, when you go certainly if somebody comes to UCLA you wouldn't come with these things in mind uh you would you would probably as, as I said earlier go to a functional medicine practitioner or to some healer I mean there's uh, lots of people out there now uh, you know proclaiming and and advertising their skills on 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 the internet um if you could just say briefly you've implemented several programs at 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 Emory, and I was just curious to hear what those are and and how successful they have been for you. Right, and, and thank you for asking, Emory, Emory, because I'm I'm so passionate about really filling a need in our healthcare system. And so, as I was saying, we didn't have a mechanism of helping people in between office visits. And as you mentioned, there's a whole field of different um, people on the internet, different branches of medicine that have tried to fill that void. And that void is really helping people with salutogenesis, right? So most of healthcare is focused on pathogenesis, what leads to disease. Very little effort is put towards health, towards understanding the science of becoming well. And what I wanted to do is bring that into the healthcare system. I strongly feel that being at an academic medical center, we are here to lead. We're here to lead progress. We're here to lead research. And I feel like we need to take the lead on helping people prevent, manage, and reverse chronic disease through lifestyle. And we have decades in thousands of studies showing us that this can be the case. We know that 80% of chronic disease is preventable through lifestyle. And taking that science and putting it into the clinical space has been a, a big goal of mine for my career. And one of the things I did is start a lifestyle medicine and wellness program at my institution with the idea being offering both in person as well as virtual options for people who wanted this type of information. And so we have really embarked on doing different types of programs. We've created um, a healthy kitchen program, which we did as a worksite wellness program. We've done 
our work as clinical trials so that we could measure outcomes. So we weren't just claiming that lifestyle improved quality of life, that we have very robust analytic measures that show the impact of this type of work and why it needs to be within our healthcare system. You know, I, I've, I mean, I've also been impressed. I mean, you have, so you have on your website, you offer several things. You have a, um, uh, you know, you're coming out with with a book, Plantology. You, I'm going to ask you a few more things about this. Um, you have classes. You have a Coursera, a very popular Coursera course. Um, so you've done things that that typically um, physicians and 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 certainly my scientist colleagues would not spend any any time on. You know, I I mean, for me personally, that has changed as well. You know, when I published my first book. It was a time when 99% of my effort was focused on doing the research and writing papers and writing grants. I had really not another audience in mind, just my colleagues. And um, but then it became clear to me. I mean, there's a whole other you know audience out there that wants to know these things from from the experts, not from people that interpret um, you know these findings in uh, in their own way often in order to you know promote their their supplements or or, or their scientifically unproven uh, interventions so you've you've done this amazing thing with um, you know the book the course uh, uh, the newsletter which of these um, avenues do you think has been the most successful for you or the most impactful that's a great question Emran and I'm I'm not sure. I could necessarily pick one avenue. Um, the the Coursera course has had over 120,000 um, people enroll in it. I know that's been successful. Our podcast is in the top 5% um, by listen notes. I mean, I think they're all effective ways of reaching people, but the underlying reason um, for doing this type of work, as you mentioned, is that I want information from the people doing the work, the scientists like yourself, to make it to the public. And, and I think that we need to present this information in an unbiased way. I mean, most of us in academics, we work for nonprofit institutions. We want to present the data as accurately as we possibly can, albeit there will always be some controversy. And we want to be unbiased with the simple goal of giving people the best information possible. Yeah, and this is, I, I think it's a tremendous need. I mean, I often think, you know, we're talking about these pre-med students earlier that come to a place to do research. I I offered it, offered it to all of them <clears throat> to get involved in this promotion of the content, um, you know, like, writing short newsletter posts and uh, promotion of the content to to the general public because uh, it's not something that's certainly not at UCLA in, uh, encouraged as as an important part of their training or as part of their mission. So I, I think this is something um, I, I was curious at, at, at Emory. Was your institution highly supportive of these efforts or were you kind of a pioneer that convinced the institution to help you with this? Um, I I would say I was a pioneer. Um, I think, you know, 
we really got external funding to do programs that were clinical trials like Start the Healthy Kitchen program. There are wonderful foundations. Um, big shout out to the Ardmore Institute of Health for the tremendous support they've given us to start this type of program. There are uh, philanthropic donors who have been instrumental in getting us up and off the ground. I think a lot of lifestyle medicine and prevention is truly consumer driven. It's really not being driven by academic institutions, mine included, but no different is, is mine from any other across the country or very few exceptions. And I think our, the consumers, our patients are actually ahead of where we are. And I think we're catching up to the needs of the consumers. So part of the need for the work you're doing, you know, the books you've written um, and the efforts you're involved in, such as this podcast, is a way to help consumers in a timeline that's quicker than necessarily convincing our institutions. And I think both are valuable. I definitely don't think we should be bypassing a healthcare system because at the end of the day, this needs to be front and center in our healthcare system. But being a person that's working on both ends, I know that the timeline to make changes in a healthcare system are, are very long. And the impact we can make on the lives of the people that we want to touch can be a much shorter timeline. So, so I think, you know, the institutional support helps us make progress in the right direction, but I think we need to do this type of work on multiple levels. Yeah. So from, from this general, I mean, I totally agree with you. I, I from, 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 from this general discussion, um, you know, I've, I've sort of become aware of this um, this this epidemic that we have been um, part of over the last you know seventy five years. Some people date this start after uh, after World War II. Um, this chronic epidemic of um, of of non infectious chronic diseases, and um, it's it's been amazing to me to realize that you know people don't take that as serious. They look at this as individual diseases, your heart disease, and there. And there's medications for all of these things. So people, uh, you know, so the mortality of, of many of these disorders has um, has not increased or even has gone down sometimes, but the morbidity keeps keeps increasing. So we we have been a lot more concerned, obviously, about the pandemic and future pandemics, but that there's something underlying. Um, our, our health that keeps getting worse all the time and we're not really spending any significant amount of time dealing with as it's what you call the root cause of, of the problem. And it's also been fascinating to me to see that and I'm always careful to, to kind of find one single cause for a lot of different things as, as a scientist that's always suspicious, you know, that it's oversimplified, but it but it really seems the case for these for these chronic for this chronic disease epidemic that we're in that the standard American diet and changes in lifestyle um, combination um, is is really at the cause is at the root cause of this. And what what I've noticed, um, and it's not because I'm a gastroenterologist that the you know the gut plays a kind of a central role in its microbe, its its microbiome in in translating these lifestyles 
into you know chronic inflammation and then um, affects different organs depending on your genetic predispositions. I, I mean, do you share that view that there is sort of a this is all kind of converging onto some basic mechanisms in the body uh, that is responding to all these changes that have been going on and and continue to go on. I mean, there's obviously some counter movement on in 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 which has happened mainly in the coastal areas, but then. Uh, you know, some places in the middle as well, but it's not, it's it's not a revolution, I would say. So, you know, there's still a lot of products that are being sold that contribute to this problem and the way agriculture is subsidized and, you know. Um, so, yeah, what is what is your view on this? I mean, do you think there is a a set of core causes that that underlies our our deteriorating health that is just maintained really by medication and surgical interventions. Oh, Emran, I, I couldn't agree more with that statement. I think there are, you mentioned the gut microbiome and that is one of the root causes that contributes to a multitude of chronic disease. Other pathways we know are inflammation, antioxidant or oxidative damage. Um, epigenetic changes, there are multiple pathways. And what's really amazing and what I wish that every person listening to this podcast knew is that there's a timeline from the time these changes are taking place until disease manifests. Typically, one to two decades from the time the first changes, for example, of insulin resistance start to take place until a person is diagnosed with diabetes. We have this huge timeline on which we can intervene and make changes largely through diet and other lifestyle measures, such as, you know, the, our stress management, the way, how much we sleep, the quality of our sleep, how much we exercise. And all these factors affect these root causes, these fundamental pathways that are the common pathways that lead to disease, whether that disease is obesity, Alzheimer's, um, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, a multitude of chronic diseases all follow these same chronic pathways. So I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about helping people make simple, simple changes that make a difference. And then the other thing I wish people were more aware of is that medications they kind of treat one small part of a pathway. They don't get at these root causes. So the health that a person can achieve by making lifestyle changes are many fold greater. Like they affect your risk of all diseases, not just one disease. And sometimes the medications that try and fix one problem actually accelerate the underlying process. So for example, if I put a person on insulin that actually increases insulin resistance. And many people don't understand that some of the treatments that, for example, treat blood sugar are not treating that underlying cause. So we're seeing progression of disease despite glycemic control. And if we could really have this opportunity to help people understand that the only way to slow progression and even reverse their chronic condition is through these lifestyle changes. I think that really is the biggest reason why we need to get at these root causes that you mentioned. 
Yeah, so you mentioned this word, uh, you know, reverse, um, and also said that, you know, many of these diseases start like 10 to 15 years earlier. So if you, um, and, and, and you could actually, there are tests where you could pick this up, you know, um, both in combination, like genetic, <clears throat> genetic vulnerabilities, but also um, indications of systemic immune activation. So it's things that we don't necessarily do in medicine. Um, but do you think your your interventions are more effective or the kind of interventions that you promote are more effective in slowing this progression before the main disease kicks in? Um, and Or in other words, once the disease manifests with all its complications, how much room do you think there still is to reverse it with the lifestyle changes? Or, or is that the point where, you know, medications actually, um, or even surgery, you know, like in, um, uh, you know, like coronary surgeries uh, are, are are really required to to save this person's life? I think certainly for prevention, there's tremendous impact of lifestyle factors. Again, like I mentioned, we can prevent 80% of chronic disease through simple lifestyle changes. So we know that magnitude is large. We also know that no matter when a person starts to implement lifestyle changes, that you can slow the progression of a disease so you can improve outcomes. The degree to which you can reverse partly depends on the stage at which a person is in that disease process. There are end stages of disease. For example, if you've completely burnt out your pancreas um, from high, you know, producing massive amounts of insulin to compensate for insulin resistance, it's harder to reverse a condition that's late stage. That's been the challenge with Alzheimer's. A lot of the drugs and treatments are targeting end stage and and it's harder to actually reverse the trajectory when we're, you know, the horse is out of the barn, if you will. Um, but I think, again, for the majority of Americans who now more than half have a chronic condition, I think there's huge utility to implementing changes at any stage that you're at. Yeah, so I mean, often when I give a talk, um, you know, look at the audience, and and it, and it depends on the audience. You know, if you, um, I just gave gave a talk uh, last week in, in in Charlotte at the American College of Gastroenterology. Um, you know, which are mainly gastroenterologists, so exclusively. And then another talk. It was kind of funny. The next day in San Diego to an audience that was mainly nutritionists and. Um, so looking at the audience, you can tell, you know, the nutritionists are generally slim and, uh, you know, I, can, I can't use my general thing looking at the audience, uh, you know, 40% of you probably have metabolic syndrome, but I could do it for the physicians, you know, who are, who are much less, uh, paying much less attention to that. Um, so, and I always use that, that example if 40% of my audience, you know, are overweight and obese um, and a significant portion have metabolic syndrome, it's sort of like, it's sort of like high, high blood pressure, like hypertension that, you know, they, they all carry a high risk of developing these diseases, but they don't know about it. You know, it's like, you don't feel metabolic syndrome, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very dangerous thing. So you're running around with some people with a high blood pressure and metabolic syndrome or um, 
uh, you know, altered um, insulin uh, biology. So this is something I think that's really worrisome in, in terms of reversing or or it's more really like the prevention. You know, if so, if you could reach that group of people, forty percent of the American public, you would have make a, a huge impact. Um, I personally still have not made up my mind. Can you know once you have your once you see a patient with Parkinson's disease, so we know there could be 14 years from the onset in the gut and the enteric nervous system to the first manifestations of neurological disease. Diagnosis usually happens at uh, when the neurological diseases uh, manifest. So the question is, I'm, I'm convinced you could do something reversing the course during those 14 years of not having the full-blown syndrome but i'm not sure i haven't made up my mind based on the science once the patient comes to you with symptoms of parkinson's disease sort of like with alzheimer's disease how much do these lifestyle changes do at this point well, you you probably can answer that that question better because you deal with this in the in in the clinic um, so i'm i'm really curious to hear you know to hear your opinion on it yeah. So as you point out, a lot of the changes that happen, you know, what we call the prodromal period before the symptoms occur are changes that people can't see or feel. So by the time a person shows symptoms, has a diagnosis, like you said, of Parkinson's, it's actually a very late stage in the process. And you know, I always find it fascinating when people say, oh, I was newly diagnosed with be it, you know, Parkinson's, heart disease, diabetes. And what I wish I could really communicate to people is that you weren't newly diagnosed. This is the end stage of mm -hmm. a process that's been brewing. So I think by the time people manifest symptoms, I still do think that the trajectory of their illness can be modified with lifestyle changes. I think their quality of life and the level at which they function does improve even if it doesn't entirely reverse the condition. And you also mentioned another point that I, I think is a really good future direction for healthcare. So the million dollar question is how do we catch these diseases earlier? And, and that's where, you know, certainly a lot of my research and my, my work has been looking at what we term biomarkers or biological markers that can tell a person when these changes are happening before they get diagnosed with illness. And certainly we're looking at, you know, omic platforms, as you're very familiar with, not only in the microbiome, um, with proteomics, metabolomics, genomics, just different markers that we now have the capability of identifying uh, through molecular science. And we can create profiles, or at least that's the goal, of finding diseases earlier. And not only does that tell us, you know, or help patients know when they can start to implement some of these changes and when they need to, but it also opens up the opportunity for medications to be designed that target disease at an earlier stage, which potentially could make the medications more efficacious. Yeah, there's obviously, I mean, in the way that I see it, there's this, this huge opportunity with and with the advancing technologies um, to do these these biomarker detections, I mean, I, you know, working in this area of metabolomics with 
so the metabolites that the microbes produce and the, the body produces, <laughs> there's obviously, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of different molecules. And it's a combination of these molecules. It's not a single molecule. We, we, we still think, you know, the, the, the traditional um, pharmaceutical viewpoint, we have to identify this single molecule and that single receptor subtype, that's the most uh, most efficient therapy. So my feeling is it will probably take another 10 years before these, these omics technologies and uh, computational techniques to make, to extract information out of these massive data sets will be available. But I could see this will be a totally different medicine. I mean, all the effort will go into that early on with the screening even you know, even in adolescence, I mean, you, you don't even have to wait till somebody's an adult because uh, some of this starts, you know, early on without any symptoms. So, are, are you? I mean, to which degree you mentioned a few times in your uh, in in your research, to what degree are you looking at at measures now and um, you know, with with the kind of technologies that are currently available? Um. So. One of the roles that I'm playing is we are trying to design is what we're calling a clinic of the future, where we are looking at biomarker profiles and also integrating digital platforms, which I think is another bucket of um, what we, we haven't talked about, but the, how digital technology can also help us make changes in our behaviors and habits that help us prevent, manage, and reverse chronic disease. Um, I think it's incredibly complex work. I think there are a lot of candidate biomarkers. Not many are ready to be used in a clinical setting. A lot are experimental. I think there are companies that are promoting ones ahead of the time where I think that they're actually ready to be utilized in the clinical space. And I say this because a lot are doing this from preliminary data. A lot of times they're small studies, but we haven't done the same marker in larger populations to know if it applies to people of different genders, different ages, different socioeconomic backgrounds, et cetera. Um, so I think we need to do it in a very responsible way. Um, but I will also step back from all this and say, as exciting as it is to be able to do this work, they're all going full circle to come back and make the the point that Hippocrates made 2,000 years ago, which is we need, you know, food and exercise in the right amount to be healthy. So I also don't think we need to wait another decade. We, we know from, again, thousands of clinical studies, the value of food as medicine and exercise as medicine. And we can go ahead and implement that in our lives before we have a biomarker or a predisposition um, towards any of these diseases. We pretty much know everything that we need to know right now to make the most effective intervention, which 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 are the lifestyle interventions. Um, and it will take, you know, billions of dollars and it will take billions of NIH money and um, probably many years, maybe decades before the science catches up with this. And there's sort of another trend happening that, you know, many as we talked about earlier, you know, other lifestyle, uh, other healthcare providers pr are promoting already this, these, these lifestyle changes as, um, uh, you know, as 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 the main approach to to their patients. Very popular with with many patients. They admits their 
meets their model of the world and of their disease. Um, so you could ask yourself, you know, does medicine and science really still have to prove it? Or could we say we're going to reinvest all this money in um, in interventions, you know, public health interventions? So like one is starting um, teaching lifestyle measures in um, in elementary school, you know, making it mandatory. Um, I mean, you all know that when, uh, you know, in, in the 60s, when PE became mandatory, that has a significant impact on cardiovascular disease. Um, so this is my question. I mean, should this money, if if you could make a decision just purely based on the facts, not be invested in the science, but actually in the implementation of things that we already know? And and you bring up a really great point because I, I think the science has been there for decades. I think we continually learn more and certainly, you know, I think we learn it at how mechanistically the science of lifestyle plays out in different parts of our body. So there's a lot of um, new information that gets added, but the kind of biggest bang for the buck, if you will, is going to be in implementing the lifestyle, which, which is hard, right? So as humans, we are imperfect and behavior change is really hard, right? Smart people can do things that may not always be smart for their health. Um, and part of that is because the choices we make are largely subconscious, our health decisions. And we self-identify with our conscious brain, with our willpower. And we get very frustrated because we blame lack of willpower when in reality, we delegate a lot of food decisions and, and lifestyle habits um, to our subconscious brain, which is efficient for us to do. It's the part of our brain that buttons our shirt, shampoos our hair, et cetera. So there's a reason we do this to function efficiently. Um, but I think we have to think of our environment as a big part of how to become well. And, and this is precisely, you know, what you're saying, because what our subconscious brain does is it a looks for the path of least resistance, right? If I'm hungry, whatever I see is what I'm going to eat. And it also is driven by habit, right? And when you look at our environment, and this goes back to what you're saying about our food environment and, and how our environment has so rapidly changed, um, relative to, you know, our, our genome. And, and I think we need to think of, even if we can't change the larger environment, which is a very thorny area, right? There's a lot of economics and politics involved. We can create micro environments, right? And that's really what I advocate for my patients, right? We can create an environment in our home, in our office, in our car, where we default to better choices. Simple things, like if you want to drink more water, fill up a gallon and water bottle, put it next to you. If you want to work out after work, pack your clothes and put them in the car. If you want to eat fruits and vegetables, cut them up and make them available. So when you're hungry, that is your path of least resistance. And and I think that's really how we begin to to turn the tide. And, and if we did that on a larger scale in school systems where... The meals were from fresh gardens, which some of our elementary schools here are starting to grow. Um, if we did that in the workplace where 
um, the salad bar was the cheapest item <laughs> and <laughs> water was the drink that was at eye level, not the sodas. I think we can nudge people to better choices. Uh, and I think we would help the largest number of people using those types of applications. Yeah, I, I, I think hopefully, you know, a lot of educational institutions all the way from kindergarten to, uh, you know, universities will, will adopt these, um, these, these philosophies and, uh, you know, implement them in, in, in their, in their own food supplies. Last question. So in, in the beginning, I asked you, you know, what, pushed you in the in, in the direction your medical career to go a to go to where you are now you know you still have a long ways to go you know in in, in your current career would would you think in 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 20 years from now you know that what you're doing um what what role are you going to have in 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 20 years from now are you going to do the same thing are you going to go into politics are you going to you know, I, I'm I'm just curious. Somebody who's so so passionate and so knowledgeable in this area, um, how do you see your future? You know, Emran, I I see a future of trying to communicate the science to to people, so more people can benefit from what we already know. And I hope that I can make inroads within our healthcare system, where what we do as part of regular delivery of care is prevention. Um, so that's, that's really my goal. And, and if you, you know, if you will, I'm going to quote, um, a, you know, somebody who really was instrumental in what I took on as a challenge. Um, I once had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. William Feige, who, as you may know, is one of the former directors of the Centers for Disease Control. And, He's a luminary in public health, and I'm, I'm just going to quote him on his perspective of the phrase, do no harm. And that's the Hippocratic Oath, as you know, that we all take when we graduate from medical school. And he said the phrase, quote, usually refer to errors of commission. Far more people die and suffer because of our errors of omission, the science not used, the science not shared, and the prevention not practiced. And I take that as a challenge, right? we certainly need to think forward and think of the science that's not being used and think of how we can really make more of a difference doing no harm by communicating what we aren't taking the time to communicate. So, so that oath has taken on a new meaning for me. And I think the future of my career uh, will be focusing on really making this common knowledge, making the conversation we're having today be so obvious and evident that we wouldn't need to be having this conversation. Okay, well, this is a good way to uh, to end our, our conversation. It was it was a real pleasure talking to you, Sharon. Um, and it's it always feels good to to know that there's people that operate on the on a very similar wavelength and um, have very similar ambitions. Um, so I, I wish you all the best, and I'm really looking forward to have this conversation um, continue in the future. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor, and thank you for the work that you do promoting this information and 
taking all the incredible science and what you've contributed to academic medicine and sharing it with people who can benefit. So thanks for all the work you do. And I have very much enjoyed our conversation. Okay, thanks.